let's begin with a quick poll here, all right? Um, I want you to tell me which gospel is your favorite. Okay, now I know the right answer is all of them. You're not supposed to have favorites in the Bible, but I know everybody tends to have one gospel that really resonates with them, um, they connect with, and maybe it changes over time, but, but I'm, I'm just curious. Um, let's see, raise your hand if Matthew is kind of your, your favorite gospel. All right, okay. Wow, all right. And what about Mark? Okay, all right. All right, Mark. What about Luke? Okay, all right. I don't know why I'm looking. I can't see very far without my glasses, but I'm acting, I'm acting like I'm seeing this. Um, and then John. Raise your hand, John. Okay. All right. Well, that went about like I thought it would. Um, poor Mark. You know, uh, he doesn't get a lot of love. Um, but yet here we are. We're beginning a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. This gospel that only, uh, I think, three of you, at least that I could see, thanks for sitting so close, Carson, um, three of you I could see raised your hand for Mark, <clears throat> but here we are. We're going to go through a series, and this series is going to take us through Easter. So, ready or not, you're going to get real familiar with Mark, and by the end of this, you're all going to raise your hands for Mark, right? Yeah. So, Mark is an interesting book, interesting gospel. <clears throat> It's often an overlooked gospel. Um, it doesn't have the eloquent, incisive teaching of Matthew, right? Sermon on the Mount. And it doesn't have the memorable stories and parables of Luke, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, old Zacchaeus. And it doesn't have the pithy sayings of John, for God so loved the world. You, I am the vine. You are the branches. It doesn't even have a birth narrative. And it doesn't have a single story of encountering the resurrected Christ. It's easy to skip past when you're flipping from Matthew to Luke. Of course, some of that has to do with the fact that it's the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters. And not only is it the shortest gospel, but Mark is also the fastest paced um, the other gospel writers, they like to, to slowly kind of build the story, take their time telling this story. They want the drama to stretch on and to slowly build. But Mark, he does just the opposite. He wastes no time. He rushes. And it, it makes his writing feel less polished than the other gospel writers. I mean, in fact, if I was grading Mark probably get a C. Now, uh, I, I do have to tell you this, this um, quick story about grading. I've graded lots of papers. I've graded lots of C papers, all right? Um, but here's one of my favorite papers I've ever graded. This was in the concluding sentence of the paper, all right? And I kid you not, this person wrote, we cannot allow false biblical interpretation lingerie on anymore. I mean, they're right. We can't, really. We can't let it lingerie on anymore. I didn't know it was already, but okay. All right. Well, that's, 
That's my favorite one. I, I probably am going to get in trouble for that. I'm probably not supposed to tell you what people write on papers, but it's fine. But I will tell you, um, those treasures like that, those are rare in grading papers. Um, but there is a more common trend in student writing. Um, you know, someone, some student, they're, they're telling a story or they're making an argument, and then they get on a roll, and then they want to make the next point, and then they go on to the next paragraph, and then they say what happened next, and then they write, and then, again, and then again, and then again. Any teachers familiar with this out there? Yeah. And then this happened, and then that happened. Well, that's not actually far off from how Mark writes his gospel. He uses two words repeatedly throughout his gospel. They get the, carry this sense. First, he uses the word and with reckless abandon, particularly to join two statements about the action that's happening. So, and John did this, and, and Jesus went there, and the disciples did that. In fact, in the first 13 verses of his gospel alone, which we will read in a moment, he uses and like this 14 times. And, and Mark, he also loves the word immediately. Our English translations will use various synonyms for this one Greek word. Though it, might, it might say at that time or at once or as soon as. But it's the same word in Greek. Immediately this and immediately that. Mark uses this word 42 times in his gospel. That word, that same word, is used less than 20 times in the whole rest of the New Testament. Now, it could be that Mark is a terrible writer. He doesn't know how to use transitions well. But actually, I think Mark is being very intentional in his use of and, and immediately. He wants to get us to his main point and get us there fast. So if I were to summarize Mark's gospel, I would suggest that Mark's primary concern in writing his gospel is to answer one central question. Who is this Jesus? And as we go through this sermon series, we will keep that question at the forefront. But this is the question Mark wants us to wrestle with, and he is going to reveal in time the answer to that question. So Mark starts his story, and Jesus is already an adult. There's no time for birth narratives or children's stories about getting lost in the temple. No time for that. He jumps right in, and then, and immediately. And he does this because he's creating a sense of movement. He is headed somewhere with his story. He's creating tension and excitement and anticipation. He's rushing the story ahead. And he uses these two words to create this breakneck pace. He does this primarily in the first eight chapters. He's doing this because he wants to get us to the climax of the story. The cross. Now, Mark cares deeply about the life and ministry of Jesus, but the focal point of his gospel is the cross. And so he tells the story in such a way that it propels us toward that central event. 
Mark's not doing this because he wants to get to the surprise ending. No, his audience already knows that Jesus died and was resurrected. He writes this way and wants to focus on the cross because he knows that it is through the cross that we can truly and fully know who Jesus is. And so, as we go through Mark's gospel, we're going to wrestle with how each story and saying and teaching connects to the climactic moment of the cross. Or said better, we are going to see how the cross is the interpretive key for answering the question, who is this Jesus? Okay, one more quick introductory comment to the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll get into it. Some scholars have have noted, have pointed out how this gospel resembles ancient dramas, even Greek tragedies. For example, Mark begins with a prologue, common to dramas, where the narrator sets the stage. And we'll read the prologue here in a moment. But I point this out because I think it can help Mark's gospel come to life. It helps to realize that when Mark wrote this, he knew that it was going to be read aloud to his audience. The majority of people back then were illiterate, and so he writes in such a way that the audience, as they listen, can get caught up in the drama. The fast pace of the first uh, few chapters build excitement, and then the turning point in chapter 8, and then the march to the climax, all the while. The hero of the story stays center stage. And the one thing about a drama, about theater, if you will, is that the audience becomes a part of the unfolding story. It's almost as if we have a part to play. Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So over the coming weeks, we, as we go through Mark, we're going to see that a lot of people have a hard time answering the question, who is this Jesus? Or at least answering it correctly. But Mark tells us from the get-go, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, now first, got to mention here, note how Mark starts, the beginning. Why start with those words? 
I mean, the beginning of Jesus' story is actually Christmas, right? The birth. And Mark knows this. But he begins with the beginning as a nod to Genesis 1. The first words of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word in both places, Genesis 1, Mark 1. And Mark, he does this because he wants to frame this story, this good news, this gospel as a continuation, as the fulfillment of God's purposes for creation. This drama is not out of nowhere. It's more like a fifth act. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So who is this Jesus? Well, Mark wants to be up front, wants us to know up front that this Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means it's Christ in Greek, same, which means the anointed one, the king. This is the beginning of the good news about King Jesus. Mark makes this clear from the outset, from verse 1. And now he is going to spend 16 chapters showing how this king is not your average king. And then Mark continues to set the stage by telling us how John the Baptist came to prepare the way. We can say a lot about our friend John, hanging out in the wilderness, his eating habits, his clothing, his sense of style or lack thereof. Okay, now I got to tell you another story real quick. Um, so a few weeks ago, showed up to worship on a Sunday morning, and uh, they're early, and I saw Thurman, and Thurman walks up, and Thurman's looking good. He's got his, he's got his coat on, his slacks, his nice shirt, right? And I was like, man, Thurman, you look good. It's like, you're going to make me look bad with this style. You know, you're making me look bad, but you're looking good this morning. And he goes, no, man, you, you've, you've got your own style. <laughs> thanks uh, yeah uh, right style uh-huh I was like I have clothes I don't know if I have style um, uh, but anyways John also may be lacking some style so anyways back to John thanks Thurman for your vote of confidence there that's right thanks <laughs> um, so here's John he shows up on the scene and he's doing some weird things. And one of the weirdest things he's doing is baptizing people in the Jordan River as an act of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now that language might sound familiar to us, but it would have been rather strange to first century Jews. There isn't really any evidence of Jews being baptized like this before John. There were certainly purification rituals with water. And around this time, uh, non-Jews, if they wanted to become God-fearers, they would have gone through a washing ceremony as part of their conversion experience. But, but a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins for Jews? Well, now that's a new thing. So John shows up, and something new is brewing. And John makes it clear that this new thing, it's not about him. It's about one coming after him, one who is more powerful than him. Enter our protagonist. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Jesus shows up, and he's going to participate in this new thing that is brewing. So John baptizes him. But Mark doesn't put much emphasis on Jesus' actual baptism, at least not as much as Matthew does. The emphasis is on what immediately follows. When Jesus comes up from those baptismal waters, Jesus sees the heavens being torn open. Mark uses a different word for this than Matthew and Luke. They tell the same story, but he uses this word, schizo, from which we get the word schism. This word schizo, it means to rip open, to tear apart. And he uses this same word, schizo, only, only one other time in his gospel. Fifteen short chapters later, Jesus is dying on the cross. He has spent the past 15 chapters trying to show people that he was always headed to a cross. And now he is there. And with a loud cry, he breathes his last, and Mark records, the curtain of the temple was torn, schizo, ripped apart, in two, from top to bottom. And so we have here Jesus' story bookended by this same image of something being torn open and ripped apart. After his baptism, the heavens. After dying on the cross, the temple curtain, this curtain that supposedly divides heaven from earth, the divine from humanity. And what happens at these tearing aparts? Well, we get a declaration of his identity. We get the answer to who this Jesus is. So the first time is just for Jesus. He comes up from the waters, and he sees the heavens being torn apart. And he hears God the Father speak these words, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, I don't think Jesus had to be baptized. He didn't need to repent. No sins need to be forgiven. But Here's the thing, when you're about to be sent out into the wilderness, when you're about to begin your public ministry, when you're about to tell people that there's a different radical way to live, when you are about to start your journey to a cross, well, it's pretty helpful to know who you are. And so if Jesus' baptism is about anything, if baptism is about anything, it is about grounding his core identity in God's words about him. You are my son, 
whom I love with you. I am well pleased. I got to say, well pleased in English, I'm afraid, it, it makes it sound like Jesus has done something or has done enough to make God happy, right? Oh, with you, I'm, I'm well pleased now. No, that's actually not the word here. This is not God saying that God's view of Jesus is conditional on Jesus' behavior. No, the better translation, the more literal translation, is you are my son whom I love. I take pleasure in you. Or I delight in you. And so it is only from that place of confidence and assurance of God's love and his identity as a God's child, God's son, that Jesus can go out into the world, knowing that it's going to end with him on a cross. He doesn't go serve. He doesn't start teaching. He doesn't lay down his life because he is trying to get God to tell him who he is. He knows who he is. God's son, whom God loves, and who God delights in. And so he is free to go and do. Identity always comes before doing. And because he knows who he is, he can lay down his life on a cross. And it is then that his true identity is finally perceived by a human, that lone centurion standing before the cross with the curtain being torn in two, now knows, he now utters, surely this man was the Son of God. You know, before this moment, no human being calls Jesus God's son. But when a person witnesses the kind of love that leads someone to a cross, well, surely he is God's son. And so Jesus can take this path, and people can recognize him for who he is because he knows who he is. Because the Father has told him who he is. Identity before doing. Isn't it frustrating how easily we forget that? Or maybe we never got it in the first place. God gives us our identity. He says to us, you are my child, whom I love, who I delight in. And from there, we can go and do. God's love tells us who we are, and then we move and have our being out of that identity. But like the people around Jesus who aren't sure who he is, we aren't always sure who we are. We're not always sure where our identity comes from. Sometimes this is because we're listening to voices other than God. We're listening for voices that might tell us they love us, that they're well pleased with us. But that voice is something other than God. Maybe that voice is money. Maybe it's your career, success. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's that old American dream. 
Maybe it's another person. I don't know. But there are voices out there that want to tell you they love you, and they want to tell you they're well pleased with you. But these other things claim they love us, that they'll lead us to go do and to be, that claim to give us our identity. Well, when push comes to shove, they'll abandon us. Only the love of God can ground our identity, can sustain us, even to the point of dying on a cross. And here's the thing, even when we're looking to God for our identity, we're trying to hear his voice, sometimes we mistakenly hear his words, or sometimes it's the voice in our head that drowns out his voice, that voice that says, you aren't enough. That voice that says, you're guilty. That voice that says, you're not doing enough, you should do more. Well, that's not God's voice. God has never torn apart the heavens to tell you you're not enough. And God has never ripped open the skies to say, I will be pleased with you if only you will do a little bit more. God's voice calls you a child, period. God's voice says, I love you, period. God's voice says, you are my delight, period. That's your identity. And so, as followers of the baptized and crucified Messiah, are we confident, are we assured of who we are? Do we know our identity Well, God has told you, you are God's child, whom God loves, in whom God delights.